1592, the face of theatre changed forever. From the death of Julius Caesar and its wide political ramifications, to the love between Antony and Cleopatra played out on an epic scale, tragic drama had been associated with the lives of noble characters drawn from a ruling elite. But the anonymous play The Tragedy of Master Arden of Faversham enabled playwrights to conceive of the stage as a setting for more intimate family dramas. Iman Shiha of the University of Warwick treads the boards of the new domestic tragedies around the turn of the 16th century. This talk was recorded as part of the series Late Summer Lectures in 2017, organised by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. A group of plays, usually described in criticism since the 19th century as domestic tragedies, appeared between 1590s and the 1620s, heralded by the tragedy of Arden of Faversham, which appeared in 1592. They disappeared from the theatrical scene long before the closing of the theatres in 1642. Contemporaries, as Diana Henderson observes, did not label the genre as domestic tragedy. All the plays we so describe were new to them, a type of contemporary drama developing only with the emergence of the public theatre repertory in the latter part of the 16th century. What characteristics a given play should display to be designated as domestic tragedy and which plays constitute the genre are questions that modern critics have been debating since the start of the 20th century with the publication of Henry Hitch Adams' English Domestic or Homiletic Tragedy. Adams was the first modern reader of the plays to suggest a definition. A domestic tragedy, he said, is one of the common people ordinarily set in the domestic scene, dealing with personal and family relationships rather than with affairs of state and presented in a realistic fashion and ending in a tragic or otherwise serious manner. The combination of a protagonist's humble social origins, the home-based setting of the events, the personal, intimate and domestic subject matter and the tragic mode of theatrical representation that Adams identifies with the genre was something of a novelty at the end of the 16th century. Conventional theory of drama, with its origins in Aristotle, relegated the domestic, the personal and the socially humble to the medium of comedy, reserving the medium of tragedy to the depiction of socially elevated characters and to the representation of affairs of state and political rule, thinking Leah, Antony and Cleopatra, or Macbeth, for example. Such plays, as existed before the appearance of domestic tragedies, as Myron Bashnaimer writes, were un-English in origin. Depicting neither the Englishman nor England, plays that related the affairs of kings, warriors, princes, heroes, contending for this kingdom or that. However, the shift from plays centering on the high and mighty to those putting ordinary men and women centre stage was not sudden. In fact, the first time that England and the English nobility were depicted on stage was according to Bashanaima in the Chronicle play. A great step, he writes, a step toward a national type of drama. Examples of Chronicle plays include Thomas Hayward's King Edward IV, Parts 1 and 2, which dramatise, as well as King Edward IV's reign and the rise and fall of Richard III, the misfortunes of a lowly housewife turned into a courtesan under the reign of uh, Edward IV. The two parts generate a great deal of sympathy for her, importantly reflecting on the cruelty of Richard III, the cause of her downfall. 
In fact, the title page puts the two stories next to each other, the story of royalty and that of the domestic and the marital turned tragic. Read from, uh, as, as can be seen from the title page, if you have access to that. Still, the chronicle play was mainly concerned with royalty and royal figures. And the ordinary and uh, the women only earned their right to be in the play, let alone to appear on its title page as a parallel story that is worthy of equal importance by virtue of their relationship to royal figures. The ranks of the socially disadvantaged were still excluded and denied the right to be staged, their stories to be told without necessarily being connected with more important figures. In fact, the servant, the burgher, the gentry and lesser nobility were not considered as worthy of a place in the serious drama, for tragedy was a fall from high estate to low. And how could such men fall from high estate to low when they were already so low? Those characters were relegated to comic representation, as gulls, buffoons and objects of ridicule. This attitude to drama and understanding of what constitutes proper elements of a play does not only find its roots in classical theory. In fact, contemporary with the emergence of domestic tragedies, the English poet and theorist Sir Philip Sidney wrote in 1595, differentiating ancient types of characters that comedy and tragedy should concern themselves with, comedy is an imitation of the common errors of our life which the player represented in the most ridiculous and scornful sort that may be. So, as it is impossible that any beholder can be content to be such a one, so that the right use of comedy will, I think, by nobody be blamed, and much less of the high and excellent tragedy that openeth the greatest wounds and showeth forth the ulcers that covered with tissue, that maketh kings fear to be tyrants, and tyrants manifest their tyrannical humours that with stirring the effects of admiration and commiseration teacheth the uncertainty of the world and upon how weak foundation gilden roofs are builded important keywords there a gilden for example that is gold um, roofs are builded so very clear reference to um, the uh, elevated status of the main figures domestic tragedies shifted the balance featuring English settings, English men and women, and subject matter that catered to the interest of ordinary men and women in their domestic and intimate lives. Ignorant or scornful of classical theory, as Keith Sturgis writes, the Elizabethan theatre produced domestic tragedy. In the prologue and epilogue of a few of these plays, playwrights give a sense of their awareness that they were departing from a theatrical norm, and offering instead something new and inventive. At the outset of a warning for fair women, for example, a character called Tragedy comes on stage only to be lampooned by a personified comedy, as Mistress Buskins with Whirlgig. The epilogue of the play registers its departure from classical tragedy. Perhaps it may seem strange unto you, that is the audience all, that one hath not revenged another's death. Bear with this true and home-born tragedy, yielding so lender, so slender argument and scope to build a matter of importance on. The epilogue of the tragedy of Master Arden of Faversham describes it as a naked tragedy. The prologue of a woman killed with kindness asks the audience to expect no spectacular scenes, look for no glorious state, it says, a muse is bent upon a barren subject, a bare scene. How did this shift come along? 
What made the maid in the kitchen a fitting subject of tragedy? What made playwrights want to foreground the marginal? There are different theories. Bash and I examined the social and economic developments of England in the late 16th century, chief among them the increase of trade and the resultant rise of the wealthy, powerful middling sorts, dictating, according to this theory, the subject matter, social status of characters and thematic concerns to be taken from their everyday lives and familiar surroundings. No longer was the apprentice, the artisan, the serving man or maid, the housewife and the non-noble uh, character beneath the notice of the theatre. Bashanaima theorizes the turn to domestic themes and away from classical drama, not only by the desire of playwrights to cater to the middle sorts, needs and reap commercial benefits from full playhouses, but also to what he describes as the middle sorts' total unfamiliarity with the classical culture, which made them resent those plays which de demanded overmuch of them. They wanted, he writes, tragedy as they understood it, tragedy as the ballads told it, primitive, crude, unpolished, grim and realistic. His speculations remain conjectural, but the interest that theatres took by the end of the 16th century in staging the concerns of the common men and women probably suggests some popular demand and popularity. In the same period in which the first domestic tragedy appeared, the late 16th century, and for over a, a century uh, thereafter, an uninterrupted succession of manuals for the well-ordering of households appeared in print. This is indicative of the importance attached to the subject by clergymen, authors, and the ready market for such publications. Didactic literature, household manuals, domestic treatises, and sermons of the late 16th century emphasized the importance of keeping a well-ordered house, for Protestant teaching cons constructed the domestic as the space where religious, social, and political education is carried out, and above all, where the all-important quality of obedience is learnt. For example, at the beginning of the 17th century, Edward Topsell stressed the necessity of applying good domestic government, evoking the powerful household state analogy, saying, Household government is the parent and first beginner of commonwealths, the seminary of kingdoms and councils, the discerner of natural wisdom, the architect of honour, and disciplinary school of a wise, virtuous and happy life. It seems as though the cultural scene was ready for plays that, unlike the didactic literature which prescribed proper domestic behaviour, included certain values and wished to shape the household after a certain image, offered a chance to think about some of those ideals, question some of the assumptions made by their moralist authors, and interrogate some of the ideas they take for granted. This is what makes domestic tragedies so exciting. It is their willingness to question and interrogate, to challenge and hold up to testing and critiquing what didactic literature sees as natural, God-given or inevitable. Andrew Clarke has compiled a tentative list of 20 plays that he thinks were written in the mood of domestic tragedy, and which unfortunately disappeared without leaving a trace. The anonymous Arden of Faversham, a Warning for Fair Women, appearing in 1599, Thomas Middleton's A Yorkshire Tragedy, which appeared in 1605, Thomas Hayward's A Woman Killed with Kindness, dated 1603, and Thomas Decker, Joan Ford, and William Rowley's The Witch of Edmonton, um, dating from 1621, are five surviving domestic tragedies, and they are the subject um, of this talk. All of those plays stage dysfunctional households and explore the disintegration of marriage and household. In the time remaining, I wish to contextualize 
a number of these plays and offer examples of my claim for those plays as spaces that challenge the needs and reductive didactic moralization on the household. I shall focus on three main areas, marriage, household government and domestic servants. The didactic literature from the late 16th century insisted on marriage being an unequal state. William Gooch, for example, an influential moralist writing in 1622, defined the marital relationship in the following hierarchical terms. He, the husband, is the highest in the family and hath both authority over all and the charge of all is committed to his charge. He is as a king in his own house, as a king is to see that land well governed where he is king, so that he is the chief ruler in the house. Of crucial importance to didactic pieces like Gucci's is the phrase well governed. The husband's assumption of his superior place in the family, his being in charge, as Gooch puts it, seems to the moralists to be straightforward thing, thing, a straightforward thing that went hand in hand with proper domestic rule, on which of course order on this, in the state itself at large depended. However, domestic tragedy challenged this, the tragedies challenge this easy, straightforward and simplistic approach to the household and insist on its complexities and nuances. A woman killed with kindness, for example, depicts the dire consequences for the household of, of making a husband ahead of the house and placing him in a position of absolute supremacy on the grounds that makes the mistress of the house vulnerable and open to violation and ruin. The play stages the dissolution of the Frankfurt's household after Master Frankfurt chooses not to allow his wife to rule in his absence for business, but rather promotes his own friend Wendell to the status of proxy husband, another Frankfurt, as he puts it. The play dramatizes the consequences of denying the mistress of the house the right to rule and stages the destruction of the house as a whole. Similarly, in a warning for fair women, the reluctance of Master Saunders, a successful merchant, to allow his wife a degree of power within the house spells tragedy for the domestic and death for its head. The tragedy of the house begins when Master Saunders refuses to allow his wife to manage her house, insisting on the supposedly higher importance of his own business affairs and ridiculing his house her housewifery as mere trifling wares. Discussing the needs of his wife has of finances with his servant, Master Saunders uses the power contemporary marriage ideology investing him with, invested him with, to insist in reply to the servant's pleas, What shall I say unto my mistress, sir? She bade me tell out, tell out thirty pounds even now. She meant to have bestowed in linen cloth. Saunders, she must defer her market till tomorrow. I know no other shift. My great affairs must not be hindered by such trifling wares. The servant, she told me, sir, the traper would be here, and George, the milliner, with other things, which she appointed should be brought her home. Saunders, all's one for that. Another time shall serve. Nor is there any such necessity but she may very well forbear a while. And the servant again, she will not be so answered at my hand, and Saunders replies crucially, tell her I did command it should be so. Immediately after this exchange, that relegates the woman's housewifery to an inferior position, a neighbour, paid by Mr. Saunders's eventual seducer, finds an opening through which she successfully undermines uh, the marital bond, and lures Mr. Saunders to her plot to murder Master Saunders. In yet another domestic tragedy, the tragedy of Master Arden of Faversham, the husband's rule, presented so unquestioningly by William Goode and many other moralists contemporary with him, 
is challenged head-on by a wife who will have nothing to do with that ideology of wifely subordination. Mistress Alice Arden, addressing her lover, states, What hath he, my husband, to do with thee, my love, or govern me, that arm to rule myself? And she proceeds to single-mindedly recruit accomplices who will help her remove the block of a husband, as she describes him, who is standing in her way. Of course, it is important to bear in mind that all the women challenging the fundamental tenets of 16th century marital and domestic ideology end up punished for their presumption. Mistress Saunders is hanged for her role in murdering her husband. Mistress Alice Arden is burnt alive for committing what used to be classic, uh, classified legally as petty treason, defined by Edward Coke, senior law officer in, uh, in England, uh, between, uh, uh, whose dates are 1552 to 1634, as a crime when a servant slayeth his master, a wife, her husband, or when a man, secular or religious, slayeth his prelate, to whom he oweth faith and obedience. The punishment for this crime was burning alive. The last woman to meet this punishment in British history was Catherine Hayes, burnt alive on May 9th, 1726, for kill killing her husband. Of course, the kind of legal uh, sorry, uh, category under which those women's crimes were lumped is instructive. This was the law's attempt to bring them back under the rule of the husbands they revolted against, exclusively applicable to murders committed by servants, wives, and secular people, rather than by masters, husbands, or religious uh, men, figures of authority. Petty treason covered acts of transgression against established hierarchy. This is for that the one is in subjection and oweth obedience and not the other, a contemporary justice of the peace explained. Servants found guilty of petty treason were drawn to the place of execution on a hurdle as a form of public shaming, then hanged. Mistress Frankfurt from uh, a woman killed with kindness dies from starvation at the end of the play. It is this tendency in domestic tragedy to kill off women who assert themselves against their husbands challenging the contemporary patriarchal ideology, stipulating women's inferiority and subjection, that led previous scholars, like Adams Hitch, mentioned earlier, to interpret the plays as exclu exclusively didactic in nature. While they do have didactic elements, for sure, not least of which the murderous woman's repentance and confession at the end of the play, I believe that the punishment staged in the final scene of each one of these domestic tragedy can, tragedies can hardly erase what came before. The well-argued defense of the right to self-rule and the questioning of the contemporary injunction to wives to submit to husbands who might prove careless, tyrannical, or otherwise unfit to head a house. Another way in which the group, of, the group of plays known as domestic tragedies stage the domestic only to challenge contemporary ideologies prescribing relationships within the house, whether marital or otherwise, is their depiction of household servants. In early modern English domestic guides, household manuals and books of advice, domestic servants feature sources of anxiety, being seen as potential threats to household integrity, especially given their proximity to masters and mistresses, and thus their perceived ability to learn of secrets and private matters taking place in the house in which they are employed. In the course of recommending remedies for marital disputes, Todd and Cleaver, for example, advise, let it be done privately, between themselves, and not before servants, for they will not stick to carry tales, and they will blaze abroad such matters to your discredit. Thomas Tusser, another moralist from the period, 
gave a similar instruction. No taunts before servants for hindering thy fame. No jarring too loud for avoiding of shame. A character in Bernard's conference advises masters and mistresses that if wrongs be between them, let themselves, between themselves, or with the good liking of a faithful, secret friend, to both be ended. They must beware that the household become not partners in the matter, for servants by slander, flattery, and whispering will kindle the contention and make a prey of them. Servants are likened to predators that would feed on their master's misfortunes. In the, picture of the, in the picture of the ideal household, domestic servants emerge as potential sources of disorder that should be kept under careful supervision and strict vigilance, lest they indulge themselves in their cherished laziness, troublemaking, gossiping, lewdness and drinking. Have a good eye and guard unto the diligence of your servants, Richard Whitford instructs in a work for householders written in 1530. Dodden Cleaver remind the household mistress that she must have a diligent eye to the behaviour of her servants, what meetings and greetings, what tickings and toyings, and what words and countenances there be between men and mates, lest such matters being neglected, there follow wantonness ya folly within their house, which is a great blemish to the governors. But the picture of domestic servants that most domestic tragedies offer us tends to be more humane, nuanced, and alive to the complexities of the institution of service in the early modern English house. I shall touch upon two examples to illustrate this idea. In the tragedy of Master Arden of Faversham, the only character shown to have a conscience, to hesitate, to consider, to experience a crisis of conscience upon being seduced into the plot to murder Master Arden, is his own household servant, Michael. While other accomplices vie with each other as to who is going to deliver the fatal thrust into Master Arden's body, Michael experiences nightmares and delivers soliloquies that register his conflicted emotions and the sense of guilt he feels about the murder that is about to take place. In the soliloquy, he delivers in scene four, just before he successfully aborts an attempt on his master's life by locking doors against the assassins ready to invade his master's dwelling, Michael reveals his troubled conscience. Michael's interior tumult is registered in the opening lines of the soliloquy, which evoke an atmosphere of discord, uh, sorry, in discord, with a sense of tranquility, silence and sleep framing the speech. Conflicting thoughts, encampered in my breast, awake me with the echo of their strokes, and I, a judge, to sense that either side can give to neither wished victory. Demands of desire, oaths of service, fear, loyalty, and feelings of guilt and pity all commingle in the servant's conscience. Michael lays out his dilemma, saying, My master's kindness pleads to me for life. My mistress she hath forced me with an oath, for Susan's sake, the which I may not break. That grim, that grim-faced fellow, pitiless Blackwell, and Shakebag, the two assassins, stern in bloody stratagem, have sworn my death if I infringe my vow, a dreadful thing to be considered of. Obligation to the kind master, desire for Susan, his beloved, who happens to be a maid in the same house, 
and fear of the murderer's retaliation in case he disappoints them shatter Michael's mind. His senses start presenting a quasi-real image of aggression and threat. Methinks I see them with their bolstered hair, staring and grinning in thy Arden's gentle face. Methinks I hear them ask when Michael is, and pitiless Blackwell cries, Stop the slave, the peasant will detect the tragedy. Michael identifies himself with his master, making the slippage in the space of six lines, from aggression directed at Master Arden to one directed at himself, fantasy about the assassins who in their ruthless hands, their daggers drawn, insult upon thee with a peck of oaths, gives way to, methinks I hear them ask where Michael is. My death to him, that is Black Will, is but a merriment, and he will murder me to make him sport. Michael's awareness of the moral aspect of murder, his sense of guilt, methinks I see them, the assassins, staring and grinning in thy, Arden's gentle face, whilst thou art mangled by their earthful instruments, is the only instance of human sympathy before the murder scene. Alice repents murdering sweet Arden after his death. It stands in contrast to Mistress Arden's resolve to let him, that is Arden, die. Greens, I'll pay, pay him, that is Arden, home, whatever hap to me. Clarks, another accomplice, I'll do it, that is provide poison, and with all the haste I may, and Blackwell, the assassins, give me the money, and I will stab him. As he stands pissing against the wall, I'll kill him. Michael's troubled conscience is evoked in the murder scene, when he, apart from all those present on stage, expresses horror at what he sees. Every conspirator delivers Arden a thrust, explaining the motivation. There's for the pressing iron you told me of, Mosby deals the first blow, referring back to the time in the first scene when Arden insulted Mosby as somebody who carries an iron around, as somebody um, who is uh, a manual labourer, um, who is not entitled to carry a sword. And there's for the ten pound in my sleeve, Shakepark seconds the blow, referring to the money Mistress Alice uh, Arden has paid him to carry out the murder. Take this for hindering Mosby's love and mine. Mistress Arden delivers the, fa the final fatal thrust. The only voice refusing to remain silent in the face of this brutality is Michael's. Oh, mistress, a cry loud enough to attract attention to himself. Ah, that villain will betray us all, that he only escapes being murdered narrowly. Michael is no angel, of course, nor is he the devil that early modern moralists imagined servants were. Other servants appearing in domestic tragedies, whose depiction challenges contemporary thinking on servants, are featured in Thomas Haywood's play, A Woman Killed with Kindness. After the humiliation their mistress experiences at the hands of their master, who discovers her adultery and banishes her from the marital house, the servants are not shown as treacherously um, singing the scandal they witnessed to broadcast at large the shame of the house they were working in. Instead, the servants form a group that protects and stands up with, to their humiliated mistress. In a play that calls killing kindness, it is remarkable that warmth and kindness, life-sustaining, not life-threatening ones, come from the servants. 
On the way to her banishment, the servants form an alternative community to the one Mistress Anne was deprived of. They attempt to lift up her mood. Comfort, good mistress. Good mistress, be of good cheer. Sorrow you see hurts you, but helps you not. We all moan to see you so sad. They gird about her, that is, they circle her, and help with the tears. So generously that an outside observer, coming coincidentally by the group, describes the scene as she makes there the servants' hearts with grief to rise and draws rivers from their rocky eyes. More importantly, the servants replace her babies left behind in the marital house as Master Frankfurt directed in the discovery scene, as thou hopes for heaven, I charge thee never after this sad day to challenge any part in my two children. In the context of, context of Mistress Anne's offence, the word mother becomes even a hated word. Note, a shame that the baby's tongues should be uh, ch uh, chidden if they by chance light on. The servants reconfer her, her identity as mother on her, as they stand weeping, Nick, who appears on the stage with the abandoned lute sent to his mistress by Master Frankfurt, her husband, states, Why, how now, eyes, what now, what's here to do? I am gone, or I shall straight turn baby too. The image could serve as a mere rhetorical device to describe the crying and weeping that is characteristic of babies. The particular theatrical context of the image, however, and Mistress Frankfurt's lamentation earlier on that Having such a husband, such sweet children must enjoy neither, perhaps warrant a reading of the image as powerful and empowering to the servants and who now stand in for those lost babies. As the mistress sinks into depression, renouncing her voice, the servants, Nick, Cicely and Jenkin, become her lost voice, her tongue. Nick is asked by the mistress to say that you have seen me weep, with my wish myself dead, Nay, you may say, too, last night you saw me eat and drink my last. This, dear master, Master Frankfurt, you may say and swear. You may describe my sorrow and disclose to thy sad master my abundant woes. Tell your master what you see. Nick will become his mistress's voice in Master Frankfurt's house, communicating, interpreting, describing the woeful spectacle he witnessed, one that would perhaps Mistress Anne could be helping here create compassion and pity rather than the dissension and discord created by that previous act of reporting her adultery. Nick is not the only servant who would speak on behalf of the silent mistress. Cicely and Jenkin are exceptionally loud and vocal. Meeting the sober group coming to visit Mistress Anne, now lying on her deathbed, the servants enter bewailing, Oh, my mistress, my mistress, my poor mistress, Cicely laments, Alas, that ever I was born, that I shall, what shall I do for my poor mistress? Jenkin joins in. The two servants describe the absent, silent mistress to the group that comes to visit the dying mistress. Jenkin interprets the lamentable sight of misery that is his mistress of stage, arousing sympathy and pity. O oh Lord, sir, she no sooner heard that her brother and his friends were come to see how she did, but she for very shame of her guilty conscience fell into a swoon, and we had much ado to get life into her. 
The woman Jenkins describes is repentant, shameful, and has a conscience that feels guilt. She is a victim of Master Frankfurt's revengeful punishment rather than the object of any patience or strange virtue that her sister-in-law sees in him earlier. For Jenkins, Mistress Anne is not the kind of shameless sinner that her brother might want to free her soul from her breast. Jenkins then begins to write a story of his mistress, of her suffering, of her repentance, that is counterpart of the story his superiors come prepared to hear. Jenkins meets some success. Alas, that she should bear so hard a fate. Is she so weak in body? His listeners begin to soften and have some humane interest in the woman spoken of. Oh, sir, I can assure you, there is no help of life in her, for she will take no sustenance. She hath plainly starved herself. Look for the good hour. Many gentlemen, sorry, she ever looks for the good hour. Many gentlemen and gentlewomen in the country are come to comfort her. Jenkins' attention to the bodily deprivation he describes sounds motherly. He complains about Mistress Anne's refusal to eat, her determination to starve, the result of her decision. She is as lean as a um, loss and the still more tragic impending consequence death it is at this point i believe where the symbolism of sisley milk pale's name is activated together with jenkin she functions as a motherly figure a nurturing caring one but one who nonetheless fails in feeding the child entrusted to her care looking after their sick mistress and ensuring she is still treated as a mistress no matter uh, what happens, Cicely and Jenkins might have been viewed by the original audience as embodiments of faithful servants, those who, in a contemporary moralist's words, know that masters and mistresses are flesh and blood, as well as servants, and subject to weakness, and so subject to weakness, sickness, old age, and other distresses, wherein they may stand in great need of servants' of a servant's help. Servants, therefore, must be faithful in affording them the best help that they can. In constructing this argument for the way domestic tragedies seem to depict servants, I do not, of course, wish to suggest that this is a trend that is repeated throughout the body of those plays, for bad servants, treacherous, greedy, selfish servants, do appear in other plays within the genre, notably in A, Woman for, in a Warning for Fair Women, where Roger, a domestic servant, is as eager a murderer as his mistress. What I do wish to stress, however, is the nuanced picture of the domestic servants that the plays put together offer us and which challenges the black and white image found in contemporary didactic literature. Servants do appear in more traditional tragedies, of course, notably Emilia in Shakespeare's Othello, but the unique contribution that domestic tragedies offer lies in the fact that they are so invested in the ordinary household where no kings or queens reign, and thus the events and stories they put on stage and ask their audiences to consider are particularly relevant to their world. We know that wives as well as husbands, masters as well as servants, sow plays in the public playhouse in the period. What they sow was their lives, their own houses, no castles or palaces, no crowns or scepters, but spaces evocative of their own domestic experiences. We can only perhaps speculate about what they made of the experience. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you would like to comment on the podcast you have just listened to, or if you want to download more of our podcasts, 
visit our blog at www.readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com.